Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I I know you and I were both huge Lakers fans when we were kids, and my third grade basketball team was named the Lakers, and I had this Magic Johnson basketball. And even though I'm really a Sixers fan at heart, it was nice to root for a team that actually had a chance of winning. But as much as I loved Magic Johnson, I really loved Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You mean even more than A.C. Green or Byron Scott or Michael Thompson or Michael <laughs> Cooper? Do you, do you mean just keep going? <laughs> Look, they're all clearly great, but uh, Kareem's hook shot, you couldn't defend against it. When I learned he was a history nerd and a Bruce Lee fan and he seemed kind of quiet and introverted, like, I liked all of that. But the thing I loved the most about him, he's a massive Sherlock Holmes fan. Wait, weren't you Sherlock Holmes for like two or three Halloweens in a row as a kid? <laughs> I was. And uh, this is where all my third grade interests sort of come together. But uh, but apparently Kareem started reading Holmes when he was a rookie with the Bucks, and he got obsessed. He was inspired to use his powers of deduction to figure out players' weaknesses. And just like Holmes had those street urchin spies, the Baker Street Irregulars, Kareem used a team of ball boys to get him dirt. Like he'd pepper them for info on injuries or ask them for details on opponents. And if he knew a player was smoking, like he'd exploit that by running him up and down the court, just tiring him out. But his love for Sherlock Holmes goes so much further. He's also been the keynote speaker at a Sherlock Holmes enthusiast club, and he's published not one but two novels about Mycroft Holmes, (laughs) who, you know, if you don't know, is Holmes's older brother. I mean, Kareem's basically published his Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, but reading up about him again made me wonder about the world of fandom and what are the most rabid fan bases out there and why is identifying as a fan so important to us as humans? And that's what today's show is all about. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of that soundproof glass, arranging an extraordinary cheese plate <laughs> is our producer, Tristan McNeil. 
So, Mango, as you mentioned at the top of the show, this episode, we're on the hunt for the most devoted fan bases in the world and to understand a little more about them along the way. You know, thanks to the Internet and social media platforms like Twitter and Tumblr, it's now easier than ever for fans to find each other and geek out over their shared passion for, you know, well, just about anything. So today we'll talk about how these fanatical fan bases got their start in the pre-digital age, as well as why humans form these fan communities in the first place. And because no subject is too niche to have its own fandom, we'll also spotlight a few of our favorites that fall well outside the typical realm of sports teams or boy bands and movie stars. Yeah, and, and don't forget, we'll also be talking to a couple of super fans to get their insider's perspective on some of the world's most popular fandoms. All right, so we should start by noting an important distinction between fans and fandoms. You know, most of us are casual fans of a lot of things. We like or appreciate specific movies or TV shows, songs or books. And, you know, we might even become fans of the people behind those works if we happen to watch enough of their catalog or maybe develop some personal connection to the work. But capital F fandom is a completely different beast. You know, there's this passion and enthusiasm there that most of us would find hard to even muster, you know, even for the things we enjoy or consider ourselves fans of. Oh, absolutely. So, for example, if you're a casual Tom Hanks fan, you might check out his latest movie in theaters if you get the chance. And hopefully you'll enjoy watching it in the moment. But a card carrying member of the Tom Hanks fandom, they're going to engage with the same movie a lot earlier and in a much deeper and more sustained way. Like a Tom Hanks superfan will comb through pop culture news sites daily for any sort of crumbs about the upcoming film. And when a new trailer drops, they might do a 10-minute YouTube video dissecting every second. And they'll pop over to the Tom Hanks Reddit threads to take in a little fan fiction and maybe get some tips on how to pull off the perfect Tom Hanks cosplay. <laughs> All right, I think we... Uh... Get the point on this. By the way, kudos on choosing the most plain vanilla <laughs> example of something people might get fanatical about. I mean, I know everybody loves Tom Hanks, but is anybody that into Tom Hanks? Definitely. Hanks is a fan's fan. I mean, he's obsessed with old typewriters, so he knows the drill. He's got 250 of his own in his personal collection. Oh, wow. But uh, but he's super nice to fans. He has his uh, special quote, Hank's stationery that, that he uses to type out thank you notes. Um, that's whenever people send him letters. Wow. I mean, do, you, do you know this from experience? Is that how you know <laughs> no. all this? All right. Well, back to the idea of fandom. So while your example was suspect, the, the kind of behavior you outlined was spot on. I mean, you could swap out Hanks for Justin Bieber or Marvel superhero movies or Lord of the Rings and still have a pretty good overview of how a fandom works. And because regardless of what the content is, the true mark of fandom is you know, this intense degree to which members engage with it, and, and that's never been more true than today. You know, you already mentioned cosplay and fan fiction, but there are lots of other ways that fans stretch out content to better suit their interest levels. Sure. So pop culture enthusiasts especially seem to churn out a never-ending stream of reviews and recaps and think pieces, not to mention, like, live-tweeted commentaries during shows. Right. And, you know, there are Tumblr pages cataloging these jiffable moments or video series dedicated to the philosophical undertones of cartoons and this ever-growing number of fan sites and podcasts that approach their preferred subjects from every conceivable angle. I mean, the Internet has opened the floodgates for this kind of fan-produced reactionary content. Yeah, and all those products of fandom, like the memes and essays and videos, have really become their own kind of entertainment. And the funny thing is, in most cases, these fan-produced reactions far outweigh the runtimes of the content they're reacting to. Like, it would take you a little over seven hours to binge the latest season of Game of Thrones. 
but a diehard fan could easily spend three or four times that just listening to a single fan-run podcast, you know, something that dives deep into each episode. And these days, if you're part of a devout enough fandom, there should be plenty of ancillary stuff to keep you busy when the show isn't on. Which is crazy to think about how much content is out there. But, I mean, look back on the media reactions to big shakeups and popular old TV shows like, you know, Who Shot JR on Dallas or whether the gang would end up in prison on the Seinfeld finale. But, you know, lots of people make sure to watch so they'd be prepared for the inevitable water cooler discussion at work the next day. But now that feels really kind of like a quaint notion, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like, like why wait until Monday to hear someone else's opinion? You can hop online and find a million hot takes on your favorite show immediately after it airs. I know for me, that's part of what stopped allowing me to identify as a fan. Like, this is so weird to say, but I knew about Harry Potter well before other people did. A kid cousin who'd been abroad had gotten in on the craze early. And before J.K. Rowling had sold the rights to the film, I was telling my boss at the time that he should try to option it because it could make a great animated feature. But as much as I love those books, I'm not like Hank Green, who, you know, has a band that writes Harry Potter songs and he writes fan fiction about wizards dealing with teen issues like being 16 and getting pregnant at Hogwarts. <laughs> like, like, how can I call myself a fan if that's what the measure of a fan is? Yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean. So what single thing do you think you're the biggest fan of? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of inconsistent. Like uh, at one point in my life, it might have been like Calvin and Hobbes or Rushmore or PG Woodhouse. I, I don't know. I'm just not that committed. I mean, I, I love Duke basketball, but I'm not the, you know, I'm in my 30s and still face paint every game level of enthusiasm. And I don't even think I own a T-shirt anymore. What are you passionate about? Well, you know, I've always had a love affair with uh, chicken biscuits, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I once tried to start a breakfast club devoted to them in high school. It was called the Chicken Biscuit Club, and and I tried to petition for it. I had like 300 people sign this petition <laughs> to start this club. And the principal pulled me aside and was like, is this a service club? I was like, no. Was this a, you know, is is this an academic club? Well, no. And well, what are you going to do in this club? And I said, well, we're going to sit around and eat chicken biscuits. And he promptly threw me out of his office, unfortunately. <laughs> so, I mean, I joined that. But I guess part of the question we're asking today is, why do capital letter F fans spend so much time on this stuff? And what do they get out of it? Well, you know, if you look at what psychologists say, most of them would tell you that fan mentality is tied up with with two things. So the, the first is self-presentation. So think about how we identify ourselves through our clothes and our appearance. I mean, that that conscious choice sends a message about the kind of people we are, or at least about the kind of people we see ourselves as or, or want to be. And in the same way, some people build parts of their identity around the media they consume or the hobbies they take part in. And that sends a message about the social groups that they belong to. Sure. So, I mean, so someone who paints their face for a game is sending a very clear signal that he or she is a sports fan. And whatever qualities that people associate with sports fan, like loyalty or enthusiasm, that's all tied up in that message as well. Right. But, you know, who is that signal for? And, and that's the second part of it. It's 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 all about connectedness. And so the paint tells others, fans or non-fans alike, where you stand, you know. But the really interesting thing is is how much of the signaling is for the fans themselves. You mean sort of letting themselves know that they're a fan? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I found this study from a few years back where a psychotherapist and clinical social worker named Teresa Stern, she was trying to determine how being part of a fandom affects people on a personal level. And she concluded that communities of fans with shared interests provide you know, this comfortable space for people to explore and come to grips with their own identities. 
so they can figure out what they like and why they like it you know, without feeling judged or embarrassed for doing so. But actually, that wasn't the only benefit. So the study also found that fandoms offer a support system for members and can even help them build self-esteem and confidence, which is, you know, where the desire for connectedness fits in. Yeah, and obviously that's such a universal desire. I mean, we all want that sense of belonging, and fandoms just seem like one way of finding it. Yeah, you know, which is why it's a shame that being a fan is so often stigmatized. So you you can keep painting your face, Mango, if you want to. <laughs> feel okay with that. But, you know, even with so much of geek culture having gone mainstream, there's still a tendency to view diehard fans as crazy or unstable or maybe even kind of pitiable. I don't, I don't know. that there's, there's this quote from a psychologist named uh, Jolie Jensen, and it breaks down the discourse pretty nicely. So, so she says, there's very little literature that explores fandom as a normal, everyday cultural or social phenomenon. Instead, the fan is characterized as an obsessed loner suffering from a disease of isolation or a frenzied crowd member suffering from a disease of contagion. In either case, the fan is seen as being irrational, out of control, and prey to a number of external forces. I mean, we both witnessed Dragon Con in Atlanta a few weeks ago, and it's so fun seeing people who are just thrilled to be and just really comfortable walking around in giant costumes. And you really feel like we're past that sort of high school mentality, but I guess it never ends for some people. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, at this point, you would think the folks who belong to a fandom might outnumber those that don't. It's like if, I don't know, three quarters of the student body was in the AV club, but uh, there are a handful of jocks still trying to give them all swirlies. Right, exactly. Speaking of which, actually, <laughs> I remember when you were talking about Dragon Con. I remember being at a hotel here in Atlanta a few years ago when Dragon Con was going on the same weekend that Alabama and Virginia Tech were playing a football game. And seeing these fan bases converge, and I remember seeing the elevator open up and this lady with these giant wings and, like, beautifully dressed stepped off the elevator. And these two guys in these big Alabama sweatshirts saw this lady, and I think they thought maybe they were dreaming or something. It was the most (laughs) bizarre convergence of these worlds, but super fans in their own right. But, you know, remember, being a dedicated fan is one of those rare points of overlap between different kinds of people. I mean, they might be watching very different things, but the level of excitement in each group is is bringing to the table. It's, you know, it's pretty evenly matched. Are you sure about that? Because, I mean, I, I feel like a convention full of uh, Trekkies can get pretty unruly, but <laughs> sports fans can get downright violent. Yeah, it's true. And for whatever reason, soccer fans seem to be among the worst offenders in that area. And at least it used to be with this, you know, like the old fashioned European hooliganism. Yeah. So I, I read this book a while back uh, called Against the Thugs by Bill Buford. It's about these extreme Man U fans, but the way they justify acts of like intense violence and racism. And it's an amazing book. And, and you know, I'm such a World Cup fan, but uh but you'll cringe at some of the things that happen in it and justifying these atrocious fistfights and riots and things where like people's noses are being smashed. I, I mean, all because like you identify with one jersey and they identify with another. Mm-hmm. You know, Seinfeld has this bit about sports where he's talking about how uh, players and coaches are constantly shifting. So your allegiance is really just to the random colors on a shirt assigned to a location. It's true. And and that can sound a little bit bleak, but I actually have a more positive story uh, to tell you on this one. Before we get to that, why don't we take a quick break for a quiz? Okay, Mango. So as you know, a couple of weeks ago, we put out a call for uh, for many of our fans who've been writing in and wanting to be on the show to say, tell us why we should have you on the show to play one of our quizzes. Mm-hmm. 
And with uh, today's episode being about superfans, we actually heard from someone who is a diehard Game of Thrones fan. Awesome. So, uh, Sarah Petrozelli, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for writing in. Now, where are we, uh, where are we talking to you today? I am calling in from uh, Connecticut. I, I asked where are we calling you from? I guess I could have answered that. <laughs> so we're actually recording in New York today. This is kind of a different one, but you're in Connecticut. We could almost throw a rock to you. So, um, all right. Well, yeah. before we jump into this, you actually told us in your email that you practice several forms of martial arts. What do you mean by that? Correct. Um, I study at the Bethel Academy of Martial Arts. I um, practice Muay Thai kickboxing. I uh, also practice Jeet Kune Do, uh, which is Bruce Lee's style martial arts, which is kind of a melting pot of Eastern and Western martial arts. Uh, you'll see in a lot of his movies that he practices, and it's a lot of minimal movement with maximum effect. That's super cool. So when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, kung fu movies on Sundays with my mom, and that's how I got into karate. Really? So, yeah. All right. Oh, cool. Very cool. <laughs> Well, you are a big Game of Thrones fan. Now tell us, when you say you're a big Game of Thrones fan, what what do you do to express your fanhood? How do you dig in? Well, I'm sure my Facebook friends and my friends in uh, real life are sick of me hearing about it, talking about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I know every Sunday when it's on that between 9 p.m. and 10.30, do not call me, do not text me. Um, I watch the show. I read a little bit of the books. I read the fan theories online. I subscribe to YouTube channels and podcasts to listen about the series and what might be coming up next. I also like to watch the behind the scenes, which is really neat because you get to see how um, Daenerys can ride the dragon. It's, she's literally riding like a mechanical bull looking thing behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's really crazy looking. And they put a green screen behind her. So she's doing all this amazing acting like she's actually riding a dragon. It's just unbelievable. And the actors are fantastic. They are definitely born to play this role. Yeah. yeah. And, and how those whole worlds are put together is just amazing. At, at Mental Floss, we did a, a interview with some of the, um, the costume makers for this show. And mm-hmm. it was just crazy to think like how they were looking to like both modern and ancient fashions to pull together the styles. It's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. Really is. It's All right, well, It's like a whole other world. Mm-hmm. And do I understand correctly that the next season, the eighth season, is supposed to be the last? Is that right? Yes. <laughs> it's so sad. I don't even want to think about it. Well, we won't. We won't think about that today. <laughs> Instead, we'll play a game. What do you say, Mango? Yeah, I'm for it. Uh, we're going to play a game called Doing It for the Fans. All right. Doing It for the <laughs> right. Fans. What a great name, Mango. All right. So, so what we're going to do, Sarah, we're going to ask you a question about a fan or fan bases. And... And you'll have to come up with the right answer. Simple as that. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Question number one. What animated Disney character, an uncle to triplets, has a hardcore fan base in Germany where they appreciate him for being a lovable loser but not a quitter? Is it Donald Duck? Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's so Yay! weird, but uh Donald Duck is insanely popular in Germany, like way more popular than Mickey. And in, in wow. fact, uh he has a fan group called the Donaldists who like to study Duckburg in a way that's akin to anthropologists. Wow, very cool. <laughs> All right, one for one. Okay, this one's a good one. All right, what music streaming service did the funk band Wolfpack used to release a 10-song album of complete silence. So they recommended their fans play it on loop as they went to sleep every night. What streaming music service did they use for this? 
Is this a, am I allowed to ask questions or no? <laughs> I thought we were asking the questions, but go for I it. Just, oh, I just okay. guess a very um, popular streaming yes. service. <laughs> Let's see. Modern day, I would say... Spotify? Yeah, that's right. So the band, Yay! the band actually collected twenty thousand dollars in royalties from that, and uh, and they used it to fund this free tour for all their fans. So they made twenty thousand dollars from this complete silence. Yeah, isn't it amazing? Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Sarah's two for two. <laughs> Question number three: Tetris fans at what science-focused university outfitted the windows of a campus building into a screen for a giant Tetris game? What university are we talking about? Oh my goodness, I saw this too and I can't remember. It's a science university. Would it be Caltech? Really good guess, but we're off on this one. What was it, Mango? It was MIT, and and that's actually just the tip of the Tetris culture. There's everything from fan fiction written about Tetris, like Fifty Shades of Tetris, to uh, Tetris-shaped tater tots on the market known as puzzle potatoes. All right, question number four. And I'm actually going to completely forgive you if you don't know the answer to this one. Because, uh, all oh, right, so, so what band fronted by Scott Stapp was shocked when their fans sued them for $2 million in a class action suit for playing a truly terrible show? Oh, my goodness. Was it Slipknot? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's actually not a bad guy. I think we should give her a point for yeah. that one. Oh, wait, wait, yeah. wait. No, no, this is, um, oh, they, everyone hates this band. It's... um. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, so the the money was supposed to be used to recoup ticket and parking costs for the fifteen thousand people in attendance, but uh, it was uh, the case was actually thrown out in court. All right, okay. <laughs> Let's do one more question. Let's see, what plucky Mexican mouse was pulled from the rotation on Cartoon Network for pushing stereotypes until Hispanic fans banded together to bring him back on air? It was a mouse. Yeah, that's right. So uh, <laughs> according to Hispanic Online, many people grew up viewing Speedy as this positive character because he always outsmarts the, quote, gringo cat Sylvester. So they petitioned to bring him back. Wow, that's a good one. All right, well, how has uh, how has Sarah done today, Mango? So Sarah's got an amazing four for five. And uh, in addition to earning our total admiration, we're going to send her the official uniform of any PTG fan, a part-time genius T-shirt. All right. Well, that's pretty awesome. We had so much fun with you uh, today, Sarah. And for any of our other listeners, if you want to come on and play a game on the show, don't forget to email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Uh, or you can call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. And you have to tell us why you should be on the show. So leave us a really interesting fact about yourself. But Sarah, this was great. Thank you so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. So welcome back to Part-Time Genius, uh, where we're talking about fan bases today. All right, so I know there are tons of bleak examples of, of how enthusiasm of sports fans can turn ugly, but, you know, as I mentioned before the break, I came across a story from the English soccer history that, that shows how all that energy can also have a positive effect on fan behavior. So this took place in 1987. And at the time, soccer was at an all-time low in the wake of these violent incidents. And in fact, the sport had fallen so far out of favor, it had actually been completely banned in some parts of Europe, which is just unimaginable. Yeah. And, and the fans that still clung tight to their favorite pastime had few reasons to smile at the time. But that changed when this guy named Frank Newton shows up at a local Manchester City stadium brandishing a five-foot inflatable banana in his arms. <laughs> Wait, like a big novelty banana? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like if Manchester has a banana mascot, I, I feel like I should know that. Well, it's it's not the mascot. that The banana was totally random, but Frank just brought it as a laugh, which ended up being exactly what his fellow fans needed. He was itching to add a little fun back into the game they held so dear, and other fans quickly followed Frank's example. They started bringing their own inflatable bananas and vendors started selling them to those who were late to the trend. And <laughs> by the next season, it was common to see all kinds of inflatables in the stands, you know, not just bananas. Of course, you've got your sharks and your penguins, your airplanes, <laughs> even Frankenstein's monster was getting in on the fun. And some fans even toted inflatable wading pools to the game and waved those around, <laughs> which I'm sure the people in back of them loved. Yeah. But uh, um I mean, that's all great, but it's kind of a shame that Frank became just another banana in the crowd. Right. Well, <laughs> he must have felt the same way, I guess. But by the 1987-88 season, he'd upgraded from this five-foot banana to a six-foot crocodile. <laughs> nice. But um, did the inflatable craze have an effect on the team? Like, did they start playing better or go on a winning streak? Or? Well, I'm afraid they didn't really play much better. <laughs> I mean, Manchester City was a notoriously bad team, and... The improved morale among their fans didn't change that, but but that's the thing. The fans were content to keep coming back to games, even if their team was losing, so long as they could have fun together like they used to back before the violence among them had given the fandom a bad name. Yeah, and that makes sense. And obviously sports can be an insanely uplifting experience as well. I I, I remember um that sociologist Emil Durkheim talks about this overwhelming spirit and experience of being part of a crowd as they watch something miraculous, like... I don't know, being there to watch that guy putt a perfect 18 on a putt-putt course or to watch someone pitch a no-hitter or whatever. I mean, it can be moving and amazing, 
but uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. So I, I read this article in The Atlantic about a study conducted by an economist named Philip Porter, and he crunched the numbers on 25 years of baseball attendance from 1966 to 1990 just to see what kind of an effect fan loyalty had on the amount of wins a team had. And amazingly, Porter found that the teams most likely to win weren't the ones with the extremely loyal fans. The winning teams were those with the most fickle fan bases. Oh, really? Wow. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense if you look at it in more of a cynical way. You know, if they know the fans will turn up win, lose, or draw, then the actual outcome of the game becomes much less important, I suppose. I mean, after all, the tickets will be sold, the seats will be filled. Of, of course, the team wants to win, but if they don't, it isn't a big deal. I mean, I, you know, I can remember when we used to go to Chicago a good bit back in our mental floss days. And mm-hmm. this was before Chicago became really good these last couple of years at baseball. And you would see these people just so fueled by opening day and how excited they were to go. And the Cubs were always horrible, but they <laughs> loved going to these games. So it is kind of a good example of that. I know. They treat it like the beach there. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. But uh, it, it does seem like fans are getting the short end of the stick in that case, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, re- remember what we were saying about fans getting personal validation and a stronger sense of identity from their experience in fandoms. And it's the same for sports fans as it is for pop culture fans. There are these communal benefits that are often more important than the thing they're centered around. And how's that? Well, this blogger for Scientific American, let me just find this quote here. This So this writer, Eric Simons, puts it this way in his piece about the long-suffering sports fans. Why would anyone stick with a losing team? Well, one way of thinking about it is that sports fandom is one of the more accessible, more obvious, more fixed sources of identity out there in the world. Win or lose, the existence of the relationship props you up. A sports team and its fan base are an anchor point in an inconstant universe, fulfilling a need for belonging that some researchers argue is as fundamental a motivator to us as hunger. Hmm. So, I mean, that's interesting, and it, it makes the idea of fandom seem decidedly less modern if they really are rooted in this basic sort of human need for fellowship. But, well, I, I know you were excited to talk about the origins of uh, fanatical fan bases. So lay it on me. What, what's the world's oldest fan base? All right. Well, I I don't think I can definitively answer that. I mean, if you want to go way back, you know, passionate fans have cropped up around influential figures all throughout history. I mean, let's go back to Plato. He was such a rock star philosopher in ancient Greece that he set up his own academy where fans would come from all over just to pick his brain. Mm -hmm. And then there's this guy, Jesus. (laughs) They loved his carpentry. They loved him. Yeah. And, And he had his own private entourage of devotees. Even if that particular fandom was only 12 deep at the time, you know. <laughs> so we might be straying from fans into followers territory. But uh, how about Lord Byron? Like, we now know that he was one of the first public figures to be inundated with fan mail. Really? Byron? I actually hadn't heard that. <laughs> yeah, so not too long ago, historians uncovered hundreds of love letters sent to him by anonymous women who were utterly charmed by his poetry. Wow. And uh, apparently the women asked Byron to toss the letters because they contained some really scandalous and salacious stuff that (laughs) 19th century society wouldn't have approved of. But being a romantic, Byron couldn't do that. So he just filed them away for rainy day reading. Wow. It's kind of the equivalent of like, delete that text. Yeah. Right. Well, so so Byron definitely had his byromaniacs. But (laughs) You know, since we don't have any record of these ladies ever getting in touch with one another, I think it's safe to say he didn't have an organized fandom. So if we want the true starting point for what we recognize today as these fan communities, then we need to jump ahead probably to the 1890s or so when 
know, the unparalleled popularity of Sherlock Holmes set the first known fandom in motion. Sherlockians, yeah. So finally, Kareem and I can feel like we belong. So I actually remember reading that Londoners lost their minds when Conan Doyle killed his character off. Like, he'd been publishing home stories in the Strand magazine for years, but the truth is he really only saw the character as the stepping stone from genre fiction to more ambitious works, you know, um, something that was more deserving of his literary talent or whatever. But uh, but Sherlock Holmes fans had different ideas, and when he sent Holmes plunging to his death off Reichenbach Falls, the fictional detective took the bulk of the Strand's readership with him, and so more than, like, 20,000 people canceled their subscriptions in protest. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, lots of people also wrote angry letters to Conan Doyle, demanding he bring Holmes back from the dead, and supposedly tons of fans wore black armbands to show they were in mourning. You know, and across the pond, you look at the Americans, they started these, like, let's keep Holmes alive clubs. They were organizing their own letter-writing campaigns, intent on shaming the author into resurrecting their favorite character, and... So already you can see this kind of prototype fandom just forming there. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I knew Conan Doyle brought back Holmes, but I didn't realize it was because of public pressure. Yeah, he held strong for, I think it was like eight years or so, but he finally caved in 1901 when he published a prequel story set before the detective's fateful fall. That story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, went on to become one of the most iconic in the series. And just two years after that, Conan Doyle followed it with another story this time revealing that he'd never died in the first place. He'd actually <laughs> faked his own death. I know. That that storyline always struck me as so hokey, but I guess fans didn't mind. Oh, not in the least. I mean, they'd done the impossible. They'd brought a character back to life through sheer will. I mean, that's a heck of an accomplishment for, you know, a loosely associated group of people who really only have this shared fondness for Pulp Fiction in common. I mean, they weren't even fans yet, technically. I don't know if you knew this, but the term had recently entered the public lexicon as a nickname for baseball enthusiasts, but but it hadn't really been applied to other groups. So it was in 1934, seven years after Conan Doyle stopped writing Sherlock Holmes for good, this journalist named Christopher Morley came up with a different moniker for Holmes fans. Sherlockians? Nope, I know you keep trying that. (laughs) So Morley's actually responsible for the name, the New York-based Sherlock fan club that we were talking about earlier. You know, the one Kareem spoke at, it's the the, uh, Baker Street Irregulars. Hmm. And the whole thing was largely an excuse for Morley and his fellow well-to-do mystery junkies to get together and talk about their hero over drinks. You know, but the BSI also had a hand in establishing some of the rituals and ceremonies that would later become staples of modern fandoms. So we're talking about, you know, fan fiction, conventions, even cosplay. And this is true because members of the group sometimes wore Sherlock's iconic deerstalker hats, you know, to their meetings and things. Hmm. I mean, it's pretty cool that the first fandom is still going strong today. And I mean, that kind of longevity is a testament not just to the character who has proven to be endlessly adaptable, but, but to the power of the fans themselves. Yeah, you know, I think prior to Sherlock, people generally accepted when stories ended and were willing to move on whether the author said it was time to do so. But something about Holmes and his adventures resonated with readers in in a special way. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they told the author to bring him back and it actually worked, that's insane. (laughs) And that kind of open communication between fans and creators seems like a really important step in the evolution of fandoms. And it's something we see more and more of now that fandoms are online. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, you just just look at the cult favorite TV shows that have been given a second or even third chances. I mean, this is all thanks to devoted fans making their voices heard. And some really good ones in there, too. There's 
Arrested Development or Twin Peaks or Futurama. I mean, these were all shows that were canceled only to be revived down the line through these fan efforts. Yeah, the bigger and noisier a fandom is, the more it can get accomplished. But, you know, there's something to be said for the fringe fan groups as well. They don't often make the headlines, but it's nice to know they're out there doing their thing. I'm a little skeptical here because I I don't know how fringe we're talking here. (laughs) But uh, before things get too weird, why don't we take a quick break? So, Mango, I know a few weeks ago you were reeling off a few of your favorite names for, you know, various fan bases and things like, you know, how Barry Manilow's fans are called Fanilow's mm-hmm. and Chris Pine's fans are called, you said Pine Nuts, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And so I've got a couple more of my favorites written down I wanted to share. Uh, Katy Perry fans are called Katie Cats, fans of The Who or The Hooligans, and any idea what Ed Sheeran fans are called? What? Cheerios. I actually already knew that. I'm one of them, but I just didn't want to admit it. Actually, one I remember thinking was funny was Clay Aiken's fans are apparently called Claymates. <laughs> so I, I love the wordplay ones. And of course, there are fan bases for TV shows and sports and comic characters. Veronica Mars has her marshmallows. Arsenal has the Gooners because the team's the Gunners. And I, I have to admit, I'm disappointed. I thought you were going to say Arsenio Hall. And I was like, oh, who are they? Oh, they, he had the dog pound. All right. Dog yeah, pound. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt there. No, no, no. And I, I don't know why this is funny to me, but fans of the show community call themselves human beings. All right. So <laughs> so we've listed off a few of them, but but I know you and I wanted to create kind of this kids alphabet of these, like C is for Cumberbabes, which Benedict Cumberbatch's fan base is called, and G is for the uh, Gould Diggers, which are Ellie Goulding's fan base. And, and we thought we'd turn this into a little contest. So to anyone who submits a fan base nickname that makes us smile, and we include it in our alphabet. We'll send you a small reward as thanks. Yeah, so just submit the name of the fan base that tickles you and your name and address. The address part is important to part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. And we'll try to pull these together in the next few weeks. All right, back to the show. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A dot com. All 
All right, Mango, I'll admit I'm curious. What kind of obscure fan bases did you come across in your research? Well, we mentioned Trekkies and Sherlockians, and of course you're familiar with the Believers and the One Directioners, but uh, have you ever heard of the Afols? I can't say I've had the pleasure. So, <laughs> so what is an AFL? It's uh, actually an acronym for the adult fans of Lego. These are huh. the older plastic brick enthusiasts who organize conventions, buy and trade pieces online, and you know construct their own elaborate masterpieces to show off to other AFLs. According to Lego, the adult fans account for roughly five percent of their total sales, and as much as half or more of the revenue at the company's dedicated Lego stores. At last count, there were more than 40,000 self-identifying AFOLs worldwide. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool, but I'm going to need you to stop saying AFOLs. It sounds like <laughs> one of those things that's like, hold your tongue and say AFOLs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no problem. But there's much better Lego lingo anyway. So, for for instance, did you know that fans measure and rank certain builds according to their swooshability? I did not. According to BrickWiki, swooshable is a word that describes the playability of a particular space or aircraft model, a vehicle that can be held aloft, moved through a stimulated series of turns and loops, and elicit an audible swoosh sound from the person <laughs> holding the model is deemed to be swooshable. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, actually, I like that one. You, you got any more? Well, apparently Lego fans play a version of the White Elephant gift exchange game. It's called uh, Dirty Brickster, which is just such a great slur for a Lego thief. I agree. Oh, and, and probably my favorite Lego slang is this term, uh, one by five. One by five? I can't even imagine what that means. What is that? Yeah, so it's code, actually. See, uh, Lego fandom is still largely a man's world, though the female market share is definitely on the rise. But whenever a male AFOL spots an attractive woman at a Lego convention or wherever, he might ask his buddies, did you see that beautiful 1x5 over that parts bin? Are people really saying this? I, <laughs> I don't really get it. So is a 1x5 like a really nice kind of brick or something? <laughs> well, the name refers to a brick dimension. So one stud by five studs long. But here's the thing. Lego doesn't make a 1x5 brick. They make a 1x4 brick and a 1x6 brick. But 1x5s are non-existent. So I'm still trying to figure this out. Does this just mean that this is like a, it, a girl who shares their love of Lego is just as rare as a one by five or exactly. something like that? Okay. All right. <laughs> well, I came across a few unusual fan bases as well. And I think my favorite has to be the Roundabout Appreciate Society based in the UK. <laughs> this is a group of people, predominantly men again, who routinely get together to photograph and talk about traffic roundabouts. <laughs> I love that. You know, um, in high school, they made a tiny roundabout by my friend Pete's house, and we sat in lawn chairs in it for a day, just being ridiculous and protesting it. Um, so I guess I'm the opposite of that. <laughs> but uh, what can you possibly say about roundabouts that would require multiple meetings? I don't know what you mean. Roundabouts are chock full of juicy talking points. I mean, there's the, the architecture and the design of the roundabouts. They're they're very safety features, you know, the wildlife that call them home, <laughs> uh, you know, all the different approaches people take when entering or exiting a roundabout. <laughs> and I'm just trying to come up with anything I can here, but uh, I'm probably still selling the topic short here. But but here's how the society's founder, Kevin Beresford, describes the objects of his appreciation. He says, roads are often condemned as being scars on the landscape, but with the coming of the roundabout in all their glory... They counteract the road's unsightliness. With infinite variety, color, and creativeness, 
These bitumen babes lift our sagging spirits on long, tiresome trips. <laughs> that all sounds ridiculous. And uh, you're saying this is mostly a male fandom? Well, <laughs> in its defense, the society has taken steps in recent years to try to attract more female members. See, they release this calendar each year with a photo of a different roundabout for each month. <laughs> and apparently they started featuring one with a windmill on the cover. And so the plan here is to poach some of these female windmill enthusiasts. I guess they skew more female. And then they turn them into these humble charms of less flashy roundabouts. So it all makes perfect sense. I've already ordered my 2018. So now that I think about it, this actually sounds similar to a group I've loved for a while now. It's called the Dull Men's Club. And so this is another British group, but it's a little less discriminating about its members' interests so long as they're dull. And so um, among the club's 5,000-plus members are a guy who photographs different drain covers that he spots around town, the owner of the world's largest traffic cone collection, which is at more than 500 right now, <laughs> and a husband who has sent his wife the same Valentine's Day card for almost 40 years. Oh, that's pretty great. I, I kind of actually want to be friends with all of these guys. I know, me too. And And I love how the group got started. So apparently a group of older men was sitting in a bar reading about all these different clubs that were open to them. So, you know, uh, a sailing club, a judo club, a ski club. And it just sort of dawned on them that they don't really do any of those things. But rather than try to take up any new activities, they decided to start a club that catered to their own dull tastes. <laughs> well, you know, like we've been saying, we really are living in the golden age of fandoms. <laughs> you know, they there's a community out there for people of all interests. And and if not, you can always start up your own. And, you know, actually, if you remember back in our, our mental floss days, our two best researchers were a married couple and they met as members of a queen I know. band club, queen, <laughs> queen the band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I love that story. And did you know there's uh, there's even one group that has this uh, ritual where the members go back and forth sharing random bits of trivia with each other in rapid fire succession? Oh, that sounds suspiciously like the fact off Mango. So I guess it is time for that. Uh, why, why don't you go first? Okay, so this one's about fans who share an irrational belief. And so you know how people line up for limited release sneakers or before a new Apple product comes out? Yeah. Uh, apparently, Star Wars fans started lining up seven weeks before Star Wars Episode Three opened. And specifically, they did it at Grauman's Chinese Theater, which is doubly strange because the employees kept telling the line that the movie wasn't going to be playing there. <laughs> I mean, the fans just assumed that because the first two Star Wars prequels had debuted there, they'd be showing the third one as well despite what the employees were telling them. And it wasn't just the employees. Like, 20th Century Fox released a statement about it, but the fans just thought they were trying to get rid of them for standing outside the building for two months in Star Wars costumes. Well, so I have to know, what, what happened on opening day? So uh, a group of volunteers in Stormtrooper outfits finally just escorted them to a different theater where they got to watch it. Oh, that's pretty amazing. All right, well, did you know that Elvis's manager used to sell I Hate Elvis badges and, and merchandise with the same slogan on it? He was just trying to make sure that Elvis was able to make money off of the people who didn't like him. <laughs> I love that. Hey, have you ever heard of uh, Gadget Hackwrench? I have not. Apparently, she's this totally adorable pilot, mechanic, and inventor in Chippendale Rescue Rangers. And she's also a mouse, and and she is insanely popular with fan clubs in Russia. <laughs> they compose songs to her and play stickers of her wherever they go, apparently. And when that great site, uh, English Russia, asked members why Russians are obsessed with her, 
One member responded this way, quote, She is the divine being, the most untouched and perfect sibling of the great God on earth. Why I love her? It's stupid question. How I can't love the goddess? She is strict, cute, optimistic, and her level of technical knowledge is unachievable for a mortal being. I think she needs to meet the uh, roundabout dude. That's pretty great. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of fans, did you know that Richard Nixon loved rap music? <laughs> that can't be. Well, according to the Washington Post, there's an audio tape at the Nixon Presidential Library where he said, I've often thought that if there had been a good rap group around in those days, I might have chosen a career in music instead of <laughs> <What>? politics. <laughs> I, I don't believe that. It's true. It's actually in a number of sources. And when it became common knowledge in 1990... Christopher Buckley and Paul Slansky started writing imaginary verses for raps Nixon could have written. <laughs> so it's fan fiction about Nixon being a fan, which exactly. is amazing. So I, I think you've earned the championship belt today. All right. Thanks so much. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And in the immortal words of rapper Richard Nixon, peace, we out. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.